Father, as we think about who we are in Christ Jesus, you, you give us so many beautiful pictures of this transformation that has taken place, God, but one of them, one of them is that you call us your family, that we are adopted into your family by the grace and the mercy of Christ poured out and applied to those who repent. You call us your sons and daughters, and we are brothers and sisters of Christ. Uh, so we rejoice to be your family. And I pray, God, that um, that would not just be a position that we enjoy ourselves, but that it would be a public witness to the goodness of God in our lives, of the way that we're joined together and the way that we would use our safe position in you to be a blessing and a benefit to those who have need in the community, in the broader community, and that that would be a witness for you. Uh, so God, just work on people's hearts as they think about how they might participate in safe families. I pray now, Lord, that you would help us with attention and insight into your word. Uh, we come to your word with confidence because we know that your Holy Spirit is our teacher and reveals the truths that you have here in your enduring word. I pray, God, that you would um, just protect me from error. Uh, God, if there's anything that I would say today that would not be your wish or your will that it would fall on deaf ears, but rather, God, that which is true and good and from you, that that would penetrate hearts and change lives. So guide us as we come to your word again, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Revelation 2, chapter 12. We're looking at the third church in our series here to the seven letters to the seven churches. We're looking at the church of Pergamum. Just leave well enough alone. Celebrate diversity. Well, that may be true for you, but this is my truth. Coexist. There are many paths to God. Don't judge, just do you. Uh, these are phrases, and there are many others like them that are everywhere in our culture today promoting what is probably today's number one public value, tolerance. Uh, tolerance, in fact, I would say has become a cultural doctrine. And I think what is especially difficult about this has been sort of the migrating meaning of this word. I don't know if you have paid attention to this. Once upon a time, tolerance simply meant extending liberty to others to have a different belief or a different view than our own. But today, the secular doctrine of tolerance means allowing and celebrating everyone's choices, whatever they would be. In fact, as you know, if you express some kind of disapproval or disagreement or disappointment with somebody else's choices or beliefs or convictions, then you are typically said to be Intolerant, right? Narrow-minded, bigoted, even judgmental, right? In fact, trying to change somebody's beliefs about something has recently been shown to be one of our culture's most offensive practices. Uh, there was a study that came out by Barna, and I have it listed in your notes, uh, and I mentioned this actually several months ago. It's kind of a shocking uh, point that they make here, but the result of this study states that 47%, almost half, of millennial Christians believe evangelism 
to be morally wrong. One more time. 47% of professing millennial Christians believe evangelism to be morally wrong. Now, when you dig into the study a little bit and you look at its methodology and what it actually was, I think, testing, I think one of the things that it shows is it's not so much just evangelism as it is actually trying to change somebody's mind about one faith to another, to bring them to the Christian faith away from where they might be. And that is what I think they're saying is morally wrong. But it does go to show you sort of the, this undergirding value of our culture of tolerance. I think on a national plane, it shows really how far we have drifted from freedom of religion to now what I think people expect is freedom from religion, right? A little change of a preposition there. And on the spiritual plane, I would say that the threat to our public witness for Christ represents nothing less than an amputation of a limb of our faith. And I think this is what's going on in and around us, and I I know you know this is the ethic of our day. You probably face it uh, a lot more than I do. But basically what it is, is you can believe anything you want as long as you allow me to believe anything I want. Don't judge. So that's just a picture of, of sort of where we are right now. And believe it or not, this is the same kind of issue that's being addressed for the church in Pergamum. There's nothing new under the sun. Mankind's issues are mankind's issues, and it is back today. But here we see what Jesus has to say to this. And if you would look at your uh, handout, I have in the box at the top sort of, sort of the, the primary things I want you to take away today. So if you uh, start falling asleep during the service, uh, at least you'll have this, okay? First of all, we're going to see Jesus confronts the indifference and the accommodation to both sin and falsehood. We're going to see that Christ wants more from his followers than just to be saved from our own sin. We're going to see and be reminded that we are to be his witnesses in the world, promoting, proclaiming truth, and also confronting falsehood wherever we find it. And that's what this letter to Pergamum really says to them and through them to us. Uh, as you can see, this really puts us on a collision course with the world, doesn't it? In other words, being a faithful witness for Christ in this world will not allow us to simply leave well enough alone or to celebrate diversity the way the world is asking us to or to accept its multiple truth theory. It's not going to be okay to simply coexist if by that the world means don't try to change my mind. It means rejecting the notion that there are many paths to God and being willing to say so out loud. And as for the newest mantra, just do you, I think that's a t-shirt the devil's wearing these days. So let's look at the letter here. Verse 12, chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, 
you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Well, first of all, let's do a little background on Pergamum here so we understand this city and the issues of the day so we know what uh, John is writing to or rather what Jesus is speaking to. Uh, Pergamum was the leading religious city in Asia. That is, it was a very pluralistic city with lots of different religions being practiced there. It was filled with temples and altars and shrines dedicated to Zeus, filled with all kinds of pagan worship with the whole pantheon of gods and I and I won't go into all of those that were there. Uh, one of them, however, uh, Pergamum was known as home to a, a temple dedicated to Asclepius. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one before, Asclepius. Uh, this was uh, the god supposed to be the god of healing, and the symbol for it was a staff with a serpent wrapped around it. I was doing a little research on this, and I looked at the image and thought, okay, that's interesting. I probably should have showed it to you this morning. Uh, but this week while I was driving around town, I was following an ambulance into uh, uh, Fred Meyer. And guess what was on the back? A pagan symbol. It's right there. So kind of fascinating. So this city was um, the center also to the imperial cult, worship of the emperor. Uh, we saw last week that Smyrna had a heavy influence of this same kind of uh, imperial cult because of its proximity to Rome. But Pergamum was the official center, the capital, so to speak. In fact, in AD 29, there was even a temple built to the then-living emperor Augustus. And just as in Smyrna, Christians in Pergamum were being persecuted, primarily because of their refusal to participate in this imperial cult of worship. And so this is important to understand. Rome was the chief enemy of Christians in the church, or rather, Rome had seriously persecuted them and was a major threat to them. Uh, it's interesting, Christians were actually called atheists in this region because of their refusal to worship pagan gods that made them atheists in, in the community's minds. But because they didn't worship uh, sort of in the imperial cult, they were called treasonous and haters of their fellow men. And so it was that second refusal that put them in greater danger, if that makes sense. Well, let's look at the Christology of the book here. Uh, and we can kind of see how that gives shape to what follows here. We see that Christ is portrayed at the beginning as having this sharp, double-edged sword, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And if you notice, this sword sort of keeps appearing in Revelation. This is the third, there's three references just in the first two chapters. In chapter 1, uh, we see the Apostle John sort of recounting the vision given to him of the risen and glorified Christ uh, in 1.16. And it says this, In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And then sword appears twice in our passage today in our letter to Pergamum. So three times in just two chapters, uh, Christian, reader, 
That gets our attention, right? Repetition, the volume knob. We need to, be, we need to see this. Now, the imagery of a double-edged sword uh, to its original audience really conveyed sovereign authority and judgment, which was typically associated with Rome. So the fact that this imagery is being portrayed here to these churches in Asia was really sort of a shift in imagery. And it conveyed to them that Jesus Christ and not Rome was the true judge. It's his opinion and his authority which matters. And this theme continues throughout the book of Revelation. In chapter 19, towards the end, in verse 15, we see uh, this picture of the sword striking down the nations. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In other words, this whole sword imagery is meant to show the supremacy of Christ in a world that was bowing to Rome. And that was the shift that was uh, being taught here. And there is a contemporary relevance of this to you and me. And that's this. Jesus does not coexist with false deities. Not where they're celebrated. Jesus isn't compatible with other world religions. I can't tell you how many times somebody says, well, yeah, I believe in you know, Christianity, but I also practice a little bit of Buddhism. Oh, and a little bit of this. And oh, and I've made this one up all by myself. You know? They just sort of glob together little things that they like as though they have their own personal religion. It's very common. Think of how often somebody say, oh, I'm, I'm spiritual. Uh, sometimes I just want to ask the question, well, yeah, what spirit are you worshiping? Because if it's not, it's not the spirit of God, it's the spirit of something else, right? We also see that false teaching and immorality aren't cute or harmless because they lead people away from the only true refuge for sin, which is Jesus Christ. Christians who think that they're being loving by being gentle and nice and quiet and meek and not confronting these things are mistaken. It is the loving thing to do to tell people the truth about God and about his world and about what is to come. Sparing them that truth is not love. It is unloving to withhold the warning that people need to hear. The Bible says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, when we say this line in the church, as the church, we say it with a smile and a relief and an anticipation. This will be a good thing. But even that passage itself is a double-edged sword, isn't it? It cuts both ways. This will absolutely happen. Some people will come to this conclusion here on earth and in humble acknowledgement and adoration of Christ as their Savior, and one day they will declare He is Lord. But others will come to this conclusion too late in defiant defeat on their way to rightful judgment. Everyone will come to this conclusion. The question is, will they do it in time or not? Jesus taught, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Christian circles, we call this the scandal of particularity. And that is absolutely scandalous in our culture today, isn't it? But nevertheless, it's what Jesus taught. 
The book of Acts says salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must say. Now, I'm well aware that the, in our culture, among your friend group, people you rub shoulders with, uh, these sound like harsh words, don't they? Uh, Jesus himself acknowledges this in his public teaching. He says in the book of Matthew, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So Jesus even uses this sword imagery here, which is not that he carries this militant or violent demeanor and that he's eager to smite people. That's not the issue. It's that the world will be divided about him, and this division will run right through some of our families, as some of you know very well. But the reality is this. All of the world will be judged based upon their response to Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior for sin. And that is a piercing and sharp truth. Now again, some people will hear those words and say, that's hate speech, right? And someday I'm probably going to get called out for that publicly, I imagine. I'll just reply right now by saying, no, it's not. It's love speech. Uh, Think about this for an example. When you go to a wedding and the bride and groom exchange vows, and they say before God and everybody, forsaking all others and being faithful to their spouse. We don't sit there and go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've been excluded. That's hate speech. We understand what that is. That's covenantal love speech. That's declaring a fidelity to one, the one. And in the same way, the Christian's exclusive claim of fidelity is to Christ. The imagery of the sword in Revelation confronts us with the unique sovereignty of Christ. He is not just a mild-mannered Galilean teacher or one of many possible saviors. He is, as is written on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one. And we see the commendation that they're given here. He says, you have remained steadfast, verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne." Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. This sounds like a rough place, doesn't it? Uh, The word here, and and, uh, I'm going to use the word steadfast, but it comes from you remain true. That's how the NIV renders it. If you've got ESV or King James or NAS, it's hold fast. Uh, But nevertheless, I'm going to use steadfast. Um, and it's an especially impressive accolade when you think about the church in, in Pergamum and sort of the issues that they were uh, confronted with, both politically and religious. Um, in fact, twice, twice we see in this passage, right, Pergamum is identified as the dwelling place of Satan. Uh, you thought Fairbanks winter was bad, right? You know, nobody calls Fairbanks the dwelling place of Satan, at least not that I'm aware of. Uh, when I was traveling in Boston here back in February, I went on a, um, a harbor cruise, and uh, they were talking about different 
points of interest around the harbor, and it was interesting. Uh, I didn't know this at the time, but apparently there's a city out there kind of on the peninsula known as Salem, and uh, it's now become home to the Satanic Church. And they were mentioning that there was a temple there, and part of me was sort of interested in looking at it, and part of me was happy to be on the boat. But uh, nevertheless, this is supposed to be the place where Satan dwells? What's that all about? There's five opinions on this. I'll hit them really quick. The first, some think that it's a geographical reference. When you look at where Pergamum sits, it kind of sits up on a plateau, and some look at that and go, geographically, that looks like a throne. Okay, I think that one's a little weak. The second one is referring to sort of the symbols of some of the pagan deities, particularly this Asclepius one of the serpent wrapped around the staff. I I don't know about that. Some see it as uh, because Zeus was such um, a feature of worship there and there was an altar to him. Some think it's that. Uh, Some others think all of the above because all of the stuff was going around, that it was the seat of Satan there. I actually think the best opinion is is the fact that Pergamum was the capital to Roman occupation and persecution, that that was the reason uh, that Jesus calls this the place where Satan dwells. And I think there's, um, there's some context to sort of lead us to that conclusion here. You notice that where both places, it mentions where Satan dwells, they sort of bracket this event of the death of this faithful witness, this martyrdom of Antipas. And that was done at the hands of Rome for failing to, uh, to bow the knee to them. And so I, I think that's what's going on there. And so even though these Christians were being, some Christians being killed for their loyalty to Christ, nevertheless, the church was steadfast in that climate. Um, this Greek word here for steadfast, kratis, it means to grasp forcefully. You know, like the way some of you held on to the blankets this morning when someone was trying to get you out of bed. Just, just to hold on and to keep holding on. Um, the same word is used earlier in the passage of Christ who holds tightly the seven stars or the seven churches. And I think that's a really beautiful picture. It shows us that there is, in fact, a mutual grasping. As Christians hold tightly to Christ, we're reminded that He holds tightly to us. Think about it if you've ever helped somebody up off the ground or something. If you just sort of grab them and try to pull them up, you have a so-so grip. But if you extend your arm and grab their wrist and they grab your wrist and the two of you are mutually grasping one another, that's a strong hold to pull someone up, isn't it? You've felt that before. And there's a little bit of a picture of what's going on here. They're holding on to Christ, but He also holds on to the churches. There's a, a musical artist that I really appreciate. Her name is Sandra McCracken. Does anybody know of Sandra McCracken? Can I see some hands? Four of you. Okay, we'll work on that. Uh, I got to go to a concert of hers a few years ago in San Antonio, and um, I got to meet her. I played the Alaska card. You know, I said I was from Alaska, and they're like, oh, you get to meet the artist then. So, okay, cool. <laughs> so I went and got to meet her and got a picture taken with her, and she signed an album that I uh, brought home for Amy, so that was really fun. And uh, she has this title track on her album, God's Highway. And the line in the song says this, I'm holding on to you, you're holding on to me. And I love that. It's not just a beautiful image. It's theologically true. And it's a comfort for Christians to know that it's not just how firmly I grasp Christ that is my security and my faith. 
He's holding me. He's holding you. And that's a beautiful thing. Well, we get to see the complaint. They are doing something wrong here. They're accommodating and accepting sin and false teaching. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, the reference here is a little bit of an obscure one to Balaam and Balak. Uh, This comes from Numbers 25. This is the kind of passage that Pastor Adam really loves, right? And in fact, uh, he got to teach this one because I didn't want to uh, many months ago when we were going through the book of Numbers. And uh, I won't go into the whole story here, but basically Balaam was a Gentile prophet during the wilderness wanderings of Israel, and he simply helped the Midianite women to lead astray Israel through religious compromise and sexual immorality. And it's brought up here simply as a historical type. In other words, this is, this is part of your family story with God. This happened once. And this same kind of thing is happening again right here in your midst. And so while the Christians in Pergamum were remaining faithful themselves in terms of their personal devotion, they were allowing a heretical movement to flourish in their midst and therefore endangering the whole church. Here is the sharp edge of the teaching for you and I as we look at this. The implication is this. It is not enough to simply be steadfast in your own personal faith. It's not enough to simply be steadfast in your own personal faith. Jesus expects the church to stand against those who would promote false teaching and harmful immorality. That is the sharp edge of this teaching for the church today. In other words, we can't just leave well enough alone. We can't just coexist in this neutral way that the world wants us to. We can't celebrate diversity the way the church or the way the world is wanting us to. If by those things they are saying, just stay in your lane, bro. You guys do what's good for you. Just occupy your personal private faith. That'll be fine. But stay out of our hair. If that's what they're saying, we can't do that. It would certainly be easier, but doing so would draw a sharp reprimand from Christ. And I think one of the things this sort of brings up or brings into our consideration then is, well, what is our posture in the world? How do we stand as Christians in this world? Because I find that there are way too many Christians that are turned off to theology and just want a feel-good faith and a private religion that works for them. The problem with that is God has called us to be witnesses in this world. There's this great poem that one of our favorite poets has written. His name is Richard Wilbur, and just the title alone is worth the rest of the poem. Love calls us to the things of this world. Love calls us to the things of this world. And so I want to look at sort of three tempting postures for Christians in the world today. The first one is this, ignoring. Looking at where the world is, what it believes, what it practices, and just ignoring it. Here's what it looks like. 
It looks like a retreat into the Christian ghetto. We have our Christian friends. We homeschool our kids. We do the Awana thing and the small group thing. And those are all good things. The problem is we're never in the world in order and a way to be a witness to it. Our church life becomes a parallel existence so filled with activity that we never have any meaningful interaction with the world around us. In other words, we become so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Now, to avert a whole host of email complaints, I'm not dissing Awana. I'm not dissing homeschool. Our family has participated in all of those things. I say as one who has participated in those things, our schedules can be filled with church and we can be here of no good for the world. And if we're doing those good things, we have to watch out for the risks that come with them. The second tempting posture is accommodating. Some have called this today progressive Christianity and Elisa Childress came and did an excellent event for the women this past year and kind of addressed this. And this looks like a church that just tries to be soft and gentle for everybody and tries not to make any waves or offend anybody. They end up not standing for anything. And we've seen this, and when Amy and I were um, in Boston here actually this past summer, uh, one of the things that really stood out to us in the month of June, which is Pride Month, as you know, is that more churches had posted in their front yard the Pride flag than did not. It was shocking. This also looks like churches that choose, people who choose churches not for the theology, but just for the music. No interest in discipleship. They wish the preacher would preach half the time with twice as many stories. This is someone who says, I have a Bible. It's not that I need to read it. We don't bother correcting bad theology. This person doesn't warn their friends about what they're reading or what they're listening to. As long as there's a religious component to it, that's good enough, right? Just leave well enough alone. Whatever makes you happy, that's the accommodating view. The third tempting posture, I think, is this, is the attacking view. This is the person who's so frustrated by the way the world and the way it's going becomes bitter and angry and hostile. This person loves the truth, and people know it. The problem is that people also know that they don't love them. This is someone who doubles down on truth claims, but ends up distancing themselves from the very people who need that truth. This is the person who knows all the right answers, but doesn't know anybody to give them to. And so I think these are the three tempting postures for Christians today. The ignore, the accommodate, or the attack. And the command of Christ in contradiction to all of these is to lovingly engage. Love calls us to the things of this world. And Jesus has done the best, I think, to paint pictures of what this looks like. He calls us the light of the world, not just the light within your little church. We're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. There is to be a public witness, a conspicuous presence of Christ in this world. People ought to notice us, not just notice that we're hiding over there. All of these are metaphors of distinction and influence for God and for good. Jesus told his disciples right before he ascended, you will be my witnesses. There is a public witness to what, Christ, to what Christians believe. 
And so I want to ask this question, and I'm going to try to provide some answers, but I actually hope the question just lingers for you a little bit. What does it mean to be a witness in this world? What does it mean to be a witness? Let me start off by saying this. I think too many people try to hit evangelism home runs all the time. And sometimes we just need to get on base, right? Or we just need to get to bat. But here's a couple things that I think we, we need to be doing. First of all, publicly identify as a Christian. Just public identification with Christ would be a step forward for many of us. Uh, I was at the pool the other day and I was uh, talking with somebody who was sitting next to me and we were talking about uh, our, our high school kids and graduation and she was telling me that she had one who had just graduated and went to Bethel Seminary back in Minnesota. And I know something about that and uh, it's a good Christian seminary, but uh, I said, oh, tell me about that. And she said, oh, it's a, it's a private college. And I was getting the feeling that she was a little reticent to tell me that it was a Christian college. So that was funny for me as a pastor. I'm trying to kind of coax her out a little bit. And I finally said, that's a Christian college, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And now we felt free to talk. But have you ever noticed that, how you kind of speak in hushed tones about Christ and church and things of faith when you're in public? You're in Fred Meyer walking up and down the you know, the aisleways there and something comes up, but you kind of whisper it. Why do we do that? We have really neglected just the public witness for Christ in very ordinary ways. Uh, and our family is guilty of this too. And one of the ways that I know we're guilty of this is, think about this. When was the last time you saw somebody pray over their meal in public? It used to happen all the time. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it. Now, I'll be honest with you, it's been a while since we've done it. It's just very easy to let that moment pass. But what a beautiful witness when a family just pauses for a moment and thanks God for what's before them. That's a public witness. There's a lot of ways we can just be a gentle public witness, publicly identifying with Christ. Let me ask you, do your friends know that you're a Christian? Do your coworkers know? Do your neighbors know? Also, I would say, learn to ask good questions when you get into spiritual conversations. Sometimes Christians are too quick to just go right to dogma. Boom, 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 boom. And we shut down any potential conversation that might come. One of the gracious ways to be a witness for Christ is to ask questions about what somebody is saying. And I'll give you a little, little tip here. Most people can't talk for about two minutes for matters of faith without contradicting themselves. Just get them talking. Just let them talk. Ask some questions. Let them go a little bit. And then ask questions about, well, how does that work out? And uh, there's a great book. In fact, there's a class going right now. If you weren't in here, you ought to be in there. It's called Tactics. And this is a, a work done by Greg Kokel, who has come here to our Christian Thought Forum. And he has an excellent book. The class is being taught upstairs, but if you're going to miss it, you can get the book. And there's even a video series. It just helps Christians maneuver and navigate in conversation uh, to help be a witness for Christ. I would say cultivate relationships where the truth will ultimately be shared. You're working on this relationship for a purpose. Practice hospitality. Especially, gang up with somebody else. Take a Christian friend and you yourselves have somebody over who's not a Christian and just let them be around Christians in proximity to one another. There will be a witness there. I think it's amazing how much Christians today, with all that we have for practicing hospitalities, the homes that we have, as well equipped as they are, and how little we actually do it and have people into our homes. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield is an excellent, has an excellent discussion on this, and I've listed her book 
her book in your notes. Um, I ran across this quote from Alistair McGrath later or earlier this summer. He said this, Truth is more than logical syllogisms. It is about the meaningful inhabitation of our world. We must try to infuse the earth with the fragrance of heaven. I thought that was a great picture of being a public witness. So what's the correction? Well, it's repent. No surprise, this is the one that keeps coming up in all of the letters. In fact, of the seven letters that we have here, five times uh, the church is called to repent. And what I want to sort of focus on with this is that repentance is a steady invitation whenever sin and disobedience is present. And that is really a wonderful thing. The church should be encouraged by that and reassured by that. It reminds us of the forgiving nature of Christ. That he always stands ready to extend grace and forgiveness where it is needed. The reality is he will come one day with a sword. But he came first with the cross. His heart is that our sin would be not just forgotten, but that it would be punished and punished in him. That is his heart. And I would say this, that one of the undeveloped disciplines of the evangelical church today is repentance. I think in such an effort to not be Catholic, we pushed against that, and I think we've lost, I think we threw out the baby with the bathwater there. If we're already a Christian, we know that the mercy of Christ has been applied to us through our confession of sin and through our profession of faith, but that doesn't mean we're done repenting in our life. Pergamum was a faithful church, faithful in terms of personal devotion, But Christ calls them to repent from being absent in the world. There's a great line in the Book of Common Prayer, if you're familiar with it. It sort of leads people in a corporate confession, and I'll I'll let you know in advance. We're going to do that together. We're going to practice a little high church here at Bethel, and we're going to read together a corporate confession from the Common Book of Prayer. But it talks about the fact that we have sinned against God by what we have done, And what we have left undone. There are sins of commission. There are sins of omission. Pergamum had failed to be present in the world. And to stand for Christ. They just maintained a private devotion. And what we learn from this passage to them. Is that repentance is an ongoing feature of discipleship. Even for us. The last bit here. We get this encouragement which is a feature of each of these letters at the very end. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So here we are. We're, given, we're offered this hidden manna and this, this white stone. What in the world is going on here? This is very puzzling, isn't it? Um, White stones were often used in the ancient world as almost like a ticket of admission to a theater event or a sporting event or something like that. And I would remind you that these closing encouragements in each of the seven letters are all eschatological. They, they look to the end. They, they look to the future and the eternal dwelling with Christ. And so I think what we are, are meant to see here, just like think about Ephesus. If the one who is victorious, they will eat from the tree of life. Smyrna, they will not be harmed by the second death. They, they look to that eternal moment. And what I think we're meant to see here is that these white stones and these hidden manna convey 
that whoever is victorious will be personally admitted, personally known to the Father, and invited to join at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the picture that I think is given to us here. And that does leave us with one very important theological question. Does this hidden manna have gluten or not? <laughs> right? If it does, you'll be able to tolerate it just fine. <laughs> because we will have bodies to die for. Bodies that Christ meant to give us so that we can dwell with him forever and ever and ever. With all things as they should be with the shalom that our hearts long for. In the meantime, we are to hold on to him while he holds on to us. And we are to be a public witness for him in this world. Amen? I'm going to ask you to do something different now. If you would stand with me, uh, we're going to practice this, uh, this corporate confession together. And uh, it is printed in your bulletin, if that's easier for you to read it, or it's up on the screens if that's more helpful to you. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against Thee in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved Thee with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Sake of thy Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in thy will and walk in his ways to the glory of thy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Worship team, come and lead us in the declaration of truth.